Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. It is with great pleasure that I am able to announce that Simon & Schuster Publishing Company has given permission for this book to be read out loud and shared on Stories Come to Life until June 30th, 2024. But of course, the episodes that fall under that special permission will all be taken down on that date, so listen now while they're available. Who hasn't heard of Nancy Drew, the girl detective? Here is the first volume of her adventures, The Secret of the Old Clock. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, we meet Nancy and her father and learn of her inquisitive and insightful personality. Old Josiah Crowley has died, and to the surprise of everyone, his will has left all his substantial wealth to the snobbish Topham family. Nancy ponders this and feels sure there must be a second will somewhere that will allocate the money more fairly to his kinder and more deserving relatives. But where could this second will be, if it even exists? To find out, sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Nancy Drew The Secret of the Old Clock Chapter 1 The Lost Will It would be a shame if all that money went to the Tophams. They will fly higher than ever. Nancy Drew, a pretty girl of sixteen, leaned over the library table and addressed her father, who sat reading a newspaper by the study lamp. I beg your pardon, Nancy. What were you saying about the Tophams? Carson Drew, a noted criminal and mystery case lawyer, known far and wide for his work as a former district attorney, looked up from his evening paper and smiled indulgently upon his only daughter. Now, as he gave her his respectful attention, he was not particularly concerned with the Richard Topham family, but rather with the rich glow of the lamp upon Nancy's curly golden bob not at all the sort of head which one expected to indulge in serious thoughts, he told himself. Mischievously, Nancy reached over and tweaked his ear. You weren't paying a bit of attention, she accused him sternly. I was saying I think it's mean if those snobbish Tophams fall heir to all of Josiah Crowley's fortune. Can't something be done about it? Removing his horn-rimmed spectacles and carefully folding the paper, Carson Drew regarded his daughter meditatively. I'm afraid not, Nancy. A will is a will, you know. But it does seem unfair that all the money should go to them, especially when they never treated Josiah Crowley like a human being. The Tophams were never noted for their charitable dispositions, Carson Drew observed with a smile. However, they did give Josiah a home. Yes, and everyone knows why. 
they wanted to work him into leaving all his money to them. And it seems that their scheme worked, too. They treated him like a prince, until he made his will in their favor, and then they acted as though he were dirt under their feet. Folk said he died just to be rid of their everlasting nagging. <laughs> the Toppums aren't very well liked in our little city, are they? Mr. Drew commented dryly. Who could like them, father? Richard Topham is an old skinflint who made his money by gambling on the stock exchange. And Cora, his wife, is nothing but a vapid social climber. The two girls, Isabel and Ada, are even worse. I went to school with them, and I never saw such stuck-up creatures in all my life. If they fall heir to any more money, this town won't be big enough to hold them. In her estimate of the Topham family, Nancy Drew did not exaggerate. Nearly everyone in River Heights shared the opinion that the Tophams were snobbish and arrogant, and the treatment they accorded old Josiah Crowley had aroused a great deal of unfavorable comment. Nancy had never known Josiah well, but had often seen him on the street, and secretly had regarded him as a rather nice, but extremely queer sort of individual. His wife had died during the influenza epidemic following the World War, and since that time, Crowley had made his home with various relatives. Although well-to-do, he preferred to visit around. At first, the Tophams had evidenced no interest in the old man, and he had been forced to live with kindly relatives who were scarcely able to have him with them. Crowley appreciated the sacrifice, and openly declared that he intended to make his will in their favor. Then, three years before his death, the Topham family experienced a sudden change of heart. They begged Josiah Crowley to make his home with them, and at last he consented. Presently, rumor had it that the Tophams had induced him to make his will in their favor. But as time went on and Mr. Crowley, though failing in health, maintained as firm a grip on life as ever, the Tophams treated him unkindly. Although he continued to live with them, it was whispered about that frequently he slipped away to visit his old friends, and that he intended to change his will again, cutting the Tophams out entirely. Then, one day, Josiah Crowley took to his bed and did not get up. Just before his death, he attempted to communicate something to the doctor who attended him, but his words were unintelligible. After the funeral, only one will came to light, and to the surprise of everyone, it gave the entire fortune to the Tophams. Father, what do you suppose it was that Mr. Crowley tried to tell the doctor just before he died? Nancy demanded, after a moment of thought. Do you imagine he was trying to disclose something about his will? Very likely, Nancy. Probably he intended to leave his money to more deserving relatives. But fate cheated him of the opportunity. But isn't it possible that he did make such a will, and that he was trying to tell what he had done with it? Yes, that's a possibility, of course. Josiah Crowley was rather queer in many ways. Perhaps he hid the will somewhere, Nancy suggested thoughtfully. If he did, 
I am afraid it will never come to light. The Tophams will see to that. What do you mean, father? The estate is a considerable one, I understand, Nancy, and the Tophams don't intend that anyone shall get a cent of it. It's my private opinion that they will take care that a second will is never found. Do you mean that if they discovered the will they would destroy it? Well, I'm not making any accusations, Nancy. But I do know that Richard Topham is shrewd, and he isn't noted for his honesty. Can't the present will be broken? I doubt it. While I haven't gone into the case, I am of the opinion that the Tophams have a legal right to the fortune. It would cost considerable to contest the will, and so far as I know the other relatives are in poverty. They have filed a claim declaring that a later will was made in their favor, but I doubt that the matter will ever go further. But the Tophams don't deserve the fortune, father. It doesn't seem fair. No, it isn't fair, but it is legal, and I'm afraid nothing can be done about it. There were two girls who lived somewhere on the river road that were great pets of Crowley's when they were children. It seems to me that they should have had something. And there are a number of relatives who really deserve a portion of the fortune. Nancy nodded thoughtfully, and relapsed into silence while she digested the facts of the case. From her father she had acquired the habit of thinking things through to their logical conclusion. Frequently, Carson Drew had assured her that she went at a thing like a detective. Certainly, she had a naturally clever mind, and took more than an ordinary interest in strange or baffling cases. Carson Drew, a widower, showered a great deal of affection upon his daughter. It was his secret boast that he had taught her to think for herself, and to think logically. Since he knew that Nancy could be trusted with confidential information, he frequently discussed his interesting cases with her. A number of times, Nancy had been present at interviews which her father had had with noted detectives who desired his aid in solving perplexing mysteries, and those occasions stood out as red-letter days for her. There was something about a mystery which aroused Nancy's interest, and she was never content until it was solved. More than once, her father had found her suggestions, or intuitions as he called them, extremely helpful. For a reason which she could not understand, the Crowley case had attracted Nancy's attention, although it had not fallen into her father's hands. She had a certain feeling that a mystery lurked behind it. Father, do you believe Josiah Crowley ever made a second will? Nancy demanded suddenly. You're a regular lawyer the way you cross-examine me, Carson Drew protested, but with evident enjoyment. To tell you the truth, I don't know whether he ever made a second will or not. All I do know is that— Ah, but perhaps I shouldn't mention it since my information is not very definite. Go on, Nancy commanded impatiently. You're trying to tease me. Well, I do remember that one day nearly a year ago— I was standing in the First National Bank when Crowley came in with Henry Rolstead. Not the attorney who specializes in wills and legal documents? Yes. Well, as I was saying, they came into the bank together. 
I had no intention of listening to their conversation, but I couldn't help but hear that they were discussing a will. Crowley made an appointment to call at Rolstead's office the following day. That looks as though Mr. Crowley had made up his mind to write a new will, doesn't it? That was the thought that passed through my mind at the time. You say you overheard the conversation nearly a year ago, Nancy mused. That was nearly two years after Mr. Crowley had made the will in favor of the Tophams, wasn't it? Yes. It's likely Crowley had made up his mind to change the will. I suspect he intended to cut the Tophams out. But whether or not he did, I have no way of knowing. Mr. Rolstead is an old friend of yours, isn't he? He is. An old friend and an old college classmate. Then... Why don't you ask him if he ever drew up a will for Mr. Crowley? That's a rather delicate question to ask, young lady. He may tell me it's none of my business. You know he won't. You're such a noted attorney that other lawyers feel flattered when you take an interest in their cases. Will you do it, please? I can't promise to blunder into his office and demand the information. Why this sudden interest in the case, Nancy? Oh, I don't know. A mystery always interests me, I guess, and it does seem to me that someone ought to help those poor relatives. <laughs> you take after your old dad, I'm afraid. But I'm curious to know what mystery you have discovered. If a will is missing, isn't that a mystery? If it is actually missing, yes. But it's possible that if Crowley ever wrote the will, he changed his mind and destroyed it. He was subject to sudden whims, you know. Anyhow, I'd like to learn more about the case if I can. Will you talk with Mr. Rolstead? <laughs> you are persistent, Nancy. And Mr. Drew smiled. Well, I suppose I could invite him to take luncheon with me tomorrow. Oh, please do, Nancy interrupted eagerly. That would be a splendid opportunity to find out everything he knows about the will. All right, I'll try to do it but I warn you not to expect startling news. Carson Drew glanced at his watch. Why, it's nearly midnight, Nancy. We've been discussing this case for over an hour. Better run off to bed now and forget the Tophams. All right, Nancy agreed somewhat reluctantly. Don't forget your promise. Tomorrow at luncheon. Long after his daughter had retired, Carson Drew sat by the fire. At last, he too arose. It wouldn't surprise me if Nancy has stumbled upon a real mystery, he told himself, as he snapped out the electric light and turned toward the stairway. Perhaps I shouldn't encourage her to dig into it. But after all, it's in a good cause. Chapter 2 A Chance Meeting Don't forget your luncheon engagement with Mr. Rolstead. Nancy Drew reminded her father the next morning at the breakfast table. I'll telephone him the first thing after I reach my office, Carson Drew promised. But again, I warn you not to anticipate startling news. I won't, father, Nancy laughed. But if I should happen to learn something which has a bearing on the missing will, I won't be exactly disappointed. What are your plans for the day, Nancy? Oh, nothing special. I thought I would do a little shopping this morning and I'm invited to a party one of the girls is giving in the afternoon. Then you're too busy to take luncheon with me. Oh, father, 
You know I've just been dying for an invitation, Nancy declared, her eyes dancing. I'm so anxious to learn something about that will. All right, if you have time, drop in at my office about 12.30. Mr. Rolstead may not accept my invitation, but if he does, we'll try to find out something about Josiah Crowley. Of course, I don't need to warn you not to appear too eager for information. I'll let you do all the talking, Nancy told him. I'll just keep my ears open. I'll look for you at 12.30 then. Mr. Drew pushed back his chair and glanced at his watch. I must hurry now or I'll be late getting downtown. After her father had left, Nancy Drew finished her breakfast and then went to the kitchen to consult with Hannah, the maid, concerning the work of the day. Although only sixteen, Nancy was unusually capable, and under her skillful direction, everything ran smoothly in the Drew household. On the death of her mother six years before, she had taken over the entire management of the establishment. The Drews employed one servant, Hannah Gruen, an elderly maid of all work, who had been with them for many years. The responsibility of the household might have weighed heavily upon Nancy, but she was the type of girl who is capable of accomplishing a great many things in a comparatively short length of time. She enjoyed sports of all kinds, and she found time for clubs and parties. In school, Nancy had been very popular and she boasted many friends. People declared that she had a way of taking life very seriously, without impressing one as being the least bit serious herself. While at school, Nancy had made one particular chum, Helen Corning, of whom we shall hear more later. She had also made two enemies, the Topham sisters. Once, she had caught Ada in wrongdoing in class, and both sisters had placed the blame on Nancy but Helen and two others had come to Nancy's rescue. Since that time, Ada and Isabel had been more hateful to Nancy than ever. I'll not be back for luncheon today, Nancy told Hannah, as she prepared to leave the house. I have made out the dinner menu and ordered the groceries, so I guess you won't need me for a few hours. Leaving the house, she went to the garage where she kept her automobile. It was a shining new blue roadster the birthday gift of her father. Quickly backing the automobile to the street, she set off for the shopping district. She drove swiftly down the boulevard and upon reaching the more congested streets, wormed her way skillfully through heavy traffic. Entering a department store, she made a number of small purchases on the main floor and then went directly to the wearing apparel section, as it was her intention to purchase a frock suitable for the afternoon party to which she had been invited. Usually, Nancy found the service excellent, but this morning was an especially busy one, and an extra rush of customers had temporarily overwhelmed the sales force. She did not mind waiting her turn, but quietly sat down in a convenient chair and glanced about her with interest. After a time, her attention was attracted toward two girls who, like herself, were waiting for an available saleswoman, but less patiently. Instantly, Nancy recognized them as Ada and Isabel Topham. They were remonstrating with the floor manager, and their voices carried so far 
that she could not help hearing what they said. We've been standing here nearly ten minutes, Ada said petulantly. Send a saleswoman to us immediately. I'm afraid I can't, the floor manager said regretfully. There are a number who are ahead of you. An extra rush of customers. Perhaps you don't know who we are, Ada interrupted rudely. Indeed I do, the floor manager told her with a trace of weariness. I will have a saleswoman here in a few moments, if you will only wait. We're not accustomed to waiting, Isabel Topham told him icily. Such service, Ada chimed in. Do you realize that my father owns stock in this store? If we reported your conduct to him, he could have you discharged. I'm sorry, the harassed floor manager apologized, but it is a rule of the store. You must await your turn. Ada tossed her head, and her dark eyes flashed angrily. In spite of the expensive clothes she wore, she was anything but attractive, for she was tall and slender to the point of being termed skinny. Now that her face was distorted with anger, she was positively ugly. Isabel, who was the pride of the Topham family, was rather pretty in a vapid sort of way, but Nancy Drew thought that her face lacked character. She had acquired an artificial manner of speaking, which was both irritating and amusing. It was her mother's ambition that some day she marry into a wealthy family, and every opportunity was given her for a brilliant match. The two sisters were older than Nancy, but had been in her class at school. She had found them stupid as well as arrogant. They had never been popular with their classmates, and had boasted few friends. Now, as they turned from the floor manager and saw her for the first time, Nancy bowed. Isabel coldly returned the bow, but did not speak a word of greeting. Ada gave no indication that she had even noticed her. Snobs, Nancy told herself. The next time I won't even bother to speak to them. At that moment a saleswoman hurried toward the Topham girls, and at once they began to shower abuse upon her, for her failure to wait upon them sooner. Nancy watched them curiously as they examined the gowns which the saleswoman brought out for their approval. Evidently, Isabel and Ada were in an unpleasant frame of mind, for they tossed aside beautiful creations of lace and chiffon with scarcely a second glance. They found fault with everything. A very chic gown, the saleswoman told them hopefully, as she displayed an attractive dress. It's a Paris model and arrived this morning. Ada picked it up, gave it one careless glance, and then tossed it into a chair. The gown slipped to the floor in a crumpled mass, and to the horror of the saleswoman, Ada stepped on it as she turned to examine another dress. In disgust, Nancy moved away and began to examine a rack of dresses in another part of the room. Presently, as she wandered back, she saw that Ada and Isabel were leaving without having made a purchase. As they swept past, Ada brushed against her. Instead of apologizing, she wheeled and surveyed Nancy coldly. Do watch where you are going, she said tartly. Nancy stifled a sharp retort and made no reply. Not without amusement, she watched the Topham sisters as they flounced to the elevator. I don't wonder that people say such mean things about them, Nancy told herself. 
Her thoughts were cut short as the saleswoman offered her services. It was the same girl who had waited upon the Topham sisters. Nancy quickly selected a party frock of blue crepe, which matched her eyes, and went to the fitting room to try it on. It's a real pleasure to serve you, Miss Drew, the saleswoman assured her when they were alone. But how I dread to see the Topham sisters come into the store. They are so unreasonable. Ada and Isabel aren't very popular, Nancy agreed. They seem to think their word is law. The saleswoman sighed. And I'm afraid it will be if they get all of Josiah Crowley's money. She lowered her voice. The estate hasn't been settled, but they're counting on the fortune already. I heard Miss Ada say to her sister, Oh, I guess we'll get all of old Crowley's fortune as soon as the lawyer stops squabbling. But it's my opinion that Topham's are mightily worried for fear somebody will show up with a later will, which may do them out of most of it. Nancy was far too wise to engage in gossip with the saleswoman, for she could not tell how far anything she might say would be carried. But she was interested in the information. The fact that the Tophams were worried indicated to her that they were of the opinion that Josiah Crowley had made a second will. Evidently, they were somewhat disturbed by the claims of the other relatives. Ordering the frock which she had purchased sent to her home, Nancy glanced at her watch and saw that it was after twelve o'clock. I must hurry or I'll be late in meeting father, she thought, and left the store. She drove directly to her father's office, and although a few minutes ahead of the appointed time, found that he was ready to leave. What luck, father? Nancy demanded eagerly when they were alone in the inner office. Did Mr. Rolstead promise to take luncheon with you? Yes, we are to meet him at the Royal Hotel in ten minutes. Do you still think I should quiz him about the Crowley will? Oh, I'm more than ever interested in the case, father. I can't tell you why, but I just seem to know that Josiah Crowley made a second will. Well, your intuitions are frequently correct, Nancy, Mr. Drew smiled. So I'll do my best to find out what Mr. Rolstead knows about the case. However, I must warn you not to appear too eager for information, or he may suspect we have a dark motive behind the luncheon invitation. I'll be careful, Nancy laughed. The Royal Hotel was located less than a block away, and Nancy and her father quickly walked the distance. As they entered the lobby, they found Mr. Rolstead there ahead of them. Carson Drew introduced his daughter, and the three made their way to the dining room, where a table had been reserved for them. At first, the conversation centered about a variety of subjects. As the luncheon progressed, the two lawyers began to talk enthusiastically of their college days together, and finally of their profession. Nancy began to fear that the subject of the Crowley estate would never be brought up. Then, over the coffee cups, Carson Drew skillfully swung the conversation into a new channel, and began to discuss strange cases which had fallen into his hands. By the way, I haven't heard the details of the Crowley case. How are the Tophams making out? I understand the relatives are trying to break the will. For a moment, Mr. Rolstead remained silent, and Nancy began to think that he did not intend to enter into a discussion of the case. The case wasn't turned over to me, Carson, the lawyer said quietly. 
but I confess I've followed it rather closely because of a special interest I happen to have in Crowley. As the present will stands, I do not believe it can be broken. Then the Tophams will get the entire estate, Mr. Drew commented. Yes, unless another will is uncovered. Another will? Carson Drew inquired innocently. Then you believe Crowley made a second one? Mr. Rolstead hesitated, as though uncertain whether or not he should divulge additional information, and then, with a quick glance about, lowered his voice. Of course, I wouldn't want this to get out, he began doubtfully. You may trust Nancy not to repeat, Mr. Drew observed, guessing what was in the lawyer's mind. I've found that out by experience, and Carson Drew smiled upon his daughter. Then I will say this much. It would not surprise me if another will should come to light. The Tophams treated Crowley most unkindly after he had made his will in their favor. About a year ago, Crowley came to my office and told me he wanted to draw up a new will. He indicated that he intended to cut the Tophams off without a cent. He expressed a desire to write the will himself and asked me a number of questions. I told him exactly how to proceed. When he left my office, he promised that he would have me look over the document when he had drawn it up. Then you actually saw the will? Mr. Drew asked in surprise. No. Strange to say, Crowley never came back. I don't know whether he drew up the will or not. And if he did, there would be an excellent chance that it would not be legal, I suppose. Yes, it's a real trick to draw up a will that cannot be broken. But Josiah Crowley was a very careful man. Still, if he left even a loophole, the Tophams would drag the matter into court. Yes, it's a foregone conclusion that the Tophams will keep the fortune whether they have a right to it or not. They have the advantage of money, you know. I believe the other relatives have filed a claim, but they have no proof a second will exists and without money they cannot hope to fight the Tophams. While her father and Mr. Rolstead discussed the case, Nancy Drew remained silent, but not a word of what was said escaped her. Although she gave no indication of her feelings, the information excited her. After a time, Mr. Drew paid the luncheon check, and the three arose and left the dining room. Mr. Rolstead took leave of them in the lobby. Well, Nancy, did you find out what you wanted to know? Carson Drew inquired after the lawyer had disappeared. Oh, Father, it's just as I suspected. Mr. Crowley did make a second will. You mustn't jump hastily at conclusions, Mr. Drew warned her. It's possible that Crowley never drew up the will at all, or if he did, he may have destroyed it. That's possible, of course but he had no love for the Tophams, and I have a feeling he hid the will someplace. Oh, if only I could find it. It would be as easy as looking for a needle in a haystack, Mr. Drew replied. If I were you, I would forget about the case, Nancy. I can't forget about it until I've at least made an attempt to find out what became of that will, Nancy insisted stubbornly. All right, dig into the mystery if you like but I'm afraid you've set yourself an impossible task. I don't see how you hope to discover what became of the will when you haven't even a clue. I'll find a way, Nancy laughed. 
Give me time and I'll surprise you. But after she had said goodbye to her father and was slowly driving toward home, doubt assailed her. She knew that the odds were against her. Although she was determined to find out what had become of the Crowley will, she was at a loss to know how to begin. As her father had reminded her, she did not have a single clue. Where there's a will, there's a way, she quoted whimsically. That old proverb is doubly true in the Crowley case. If there actually is a second will, I'm going to find it. And if I do, I hope it won't prove to be in the Topham's favor. Chapter 3. Racing the Storm Nancy, if you haven't planned anything special for the day, I wonder if you would care to do a little errand for me, inquired Carson Drew one morning at the breakfast table. Why, of course, Nancy agreed pleasantly. What is it? I have a number of legal documents, which must be delivered to Judge Hartgrave at Masonville sometime before noon. I would take them myself, but I have several important appointments this morning. I'd be glad to do the errand for you, Nancy promised willingly. I can run over to Masonville in the roadster. It isn't more than a fifteen-mile jaunt. Fine. That's a load off my mind. You're sure you don't mind? It's such a wonderful day. I'll enjoy the trip. Mr. Drew parted the curtains at the dining room window and looked out. It is a bright day, but I can't say I like the appearance of those clouds in the west, Nancy. I'm afraid it may rain. You know how quickly our storms come up. I'll start just as soon as I can get ready, then. Where are the papers? At the office. We can ride down together. Nancy Drew hurried away to find her hat and purse. Before Mr. Drew had collected his own belongings, she had backed the roadster from the garage and was waiting for him at the curbing. I haven't heard you mention the Crowley case lately, Mr. Drew commented as they rode along together. Have you forgotten about it? Nancy's face clouded. No, I haven't forgotten, but I must admit I've made no progress. I guess I'm not cut out for a detective. Don't feel discouraged, Nancy. The Crowley case would baffle a professional. I haven't given it up yet, Father. I may stumble onto a clue one of these days. When they reached the law office, Nancy stopped the roadster and her father got out. He disappeared inside the building and returning a few minutes later, placed a fat manila envelope in Nancy's hand. Give this to Judge Hartgrave. You know where to find him? Yes, I'll have no trouble in finding his office. I've frequently driven as far as Masonville. Selecting the shortest route to her destination, Nancy deftly shifted gears and was off. As she drove along the gravel road, her eyes traveled to the fields on either side of the highway. Like a true daughter of the Middle West, Nancy Drew took pride in the fertility of her state and saw beauty in a crop of waving green corn as well as in the rolling hills and the expanse of prairie land. More than once, Nancy glanced anxiously at the sky. The sun shone down on the gravel road with dazzling intensity, but a large black cloud had settled in the west. Still, it did not appear to be rolling up very fast, and Nancy told herself, there was no need to worry. It won't rain for an hour or two, and by that time I'll be home, she thought. Nancy took her time on the road, and it was nearly eleven o'clock when she finally drove into Masonville. 
She went at once to Judge Hartgrave's office, but was informed that he had gone to the courthouse. Nancy knew that the legal papers which she had been sent to deliver were important, and rather than leave them with the office girl, she set off in search of the judge. She had considerable trouble in finding him, and it was nearly twelve o'clock, when at last she delivered the manila envelope into his hands. Learning that Nancy was the daughter of Carson Drew, Judge Hartgrave insisted that she take luncheon at his home before returning to River Heights. Nancy accepted the invitation and spent a very pleasant hour in company with the judge and his wife. When at last she had insisted that she must start for home, it was after one thirty. I have half a notion to take a different route back, she told Judge Hartgrave as she stepped into her blue roadster. It's a beautiful drive on the river road, but the trip will take longer and I'm afraid it may rain. Judge Hartgrave looked up at the sky, but in spite of a general murkiness, the sun was shining. Oh, I don't believe it will rain for an hour or two, he said optimistically. That big cloud is only bluffing. Then I'll take the river road, Nancy decided. She said goodbye and started the motor. Soon she was spinning along the road, which wound in and out along the Muskoka River. Nancy met few automobiles, for the road was infrequently traveled. She did not hurry, but took time to enjoy the scenery. Overhanging trees with dense foliage shaded the road and formed a tunnel, which all but blotted out the sky. Presently, as Nancy drove into a clearing, she was astonished to see how dark it had become. Evidently, the big black cloud which had attracted her attention earlier in the day was no longer bluffing. It had grown rapidly in size and was spreading over the sky in an alarming fashion. As Nancy drew watched, the sun vanished as though by magic. How foolish of me to take this road, she chided herself. I'm going to be caught in the storm. There isn't a chance that I can make it. Although the river road was perfectly safe in dry weather, Nancy knew that a little rain would make it dangerously slippery. Then, too, the road was little traveled, and in case of accident, she could not depend upon passing motorists for aid. If her roadster slipped into a ditch, it would be necessary to walk miles for help. Few persons lived along the river road, for the land was not considered valuable. In the spring of the year, with the arrival of heavy rains, the Muskoka River sometimes overflowed its banks and spread over the farmland, destroying the newly planted crops. For this reason, the district was not a popular one, and the land was held by poor folk. If only I can find a farmhouse where I can drive in until the storm passes, Nancy thought desperately. The sky was now entirely overcast, and in among the trees it was as dark as night. Nancy could not see the road distinctly, and switched on the headlights of her roadster. A brisk breeze began to stir the trees, and the leaves seemed to whisper a fearful warning of the storm to come. A feeling of uneasiness took possession of Nancy Drew. She stepped on the accelerator, and the roadster fairly leaped forward, as though it, too, understood the need for haste. Suddenly, a flash of forked lightning coursed across the sky and was followed by a loud clap of thunder. That was close, Nancy murmured uncomfortably. 
She bent low over the wheel and took the curves as fast as she dared. An unexpected gust of wind struck the road and blew dust in every direction. As the cold air struck her, Nancy realized that the storm was almost upon her. Already she could see rain sweeping down upon her from the far hills. Frantically, Nancy glanced about for a possible shelter. On down the road a short distance, she caught sight of an old farmhouse and a dilapidated barn which stood near the highway. If only I can get there before the rain strikes me, Nancy thought anxiously. But the storm would hold off no longer. Large drops of rain began to splash against the windshield, slowly at first, then faster and faster. The sky had taken on a yellowish cast. Then, unexpectedly, came a second flash of lightning, and simultaneously, a deluge of rain. Nancy turned on the windshield wiper, but the rain was blinding in its violence. It was impossible to see more than a few feet ahead of the automobile. And almost in an instant, the road had dissolved into a sea of mud. Nancy had been caught in a number of storms, but never one like this. She feared that she would slip into a ditch before she could reach the shelter of the barn. Then, at the side of the road, the barn loomed up, and in relief, Nancy saw that the doors were wide open. Without an instant's hesitation, she headed straight for the building and drove in. Safely inside, she turned off the motor and the lights, and with a sigh of relief, sank back against the cushions. Well, you got in just in time, said a pleasant voice behind her. Startled, Nancy Drew turned quickly and saw a girl of her own age regarding her with interest. Even as the stranger spoke, the storm broke in full violence. A cold blast of wind rattled the barn doors and sent a sheet of rain inside. I beg your pardon, Nancy apologized as she climbed from the roadster. It wasn't very polite of me to run in here the way I did. You're more than welcome to the shelter, I'm sure, the stranger told her kindly. I'm afraid we haven't much else to offer. In the semi-darkness, Nancy studied the girl curiously. She had been impressed with her cultured voice and manner, and now she noted that her clothing, while not expensive, was neat and well-made. The girl did not appear to be the daughter of a farmer who would live on this poor land, yet she seemed to fit into her background. It looks to me as though we're in for a real storm, the girl said and smiled pleasantly. She glanced outside at the pelting rain. I'm afraid you'll be forced to remain here for some time. So long as I'm not out in the rain, I don't mind, Nancy replied quickly. That is, if you don't object. Object, the girl spoke impulsively. Oh, you can't understand how eager we are for visitors. Grace and I seldom have a chance to talk with anyone our own age. Sometimes a whole week will go by, and we won't see anyone but the postman. Nancy Drew had a natural talent for unearthing interesting stories, and now a sixth sense seemed to tell her that she had encountered something unusual. She was eager to learn more about the girl and her reason for leading such an isolated life. I must thank you for your hospitality, Nancy said with a friendly smile. After all, 
Perhaps the storm has done us both a real favor in throwing us together. At the moment, Nancy Drew little dreamed that the next few hours were to reveal the truth of her polite utterance. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to The Secret of the Old Clock. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.